Creative Brain Candy by Creators for Creators. Dude, so uh gotta ask you a question, a very serious question. Oh, this should be good. Yeah. So how stimulating do you think a stimulus check that arrives in a dead person's account is? Uh, not very. I mean to be honest. I mean well, cause the IRS wants the money back. Oh no, but I'm just saying, like, they're calling it a stimulus check. <laughs> and what are you oh, going to stimulate, a dead person? Uh, well, I, I can tell you, it's, it's less stimulating than electricity might be. Um, <laughs> well, that kind of reminds me of the end of the Green Mile. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how useful would his, uh, would, would his pardon have been if he'd received it 20 minutes later? You know, not very, right? Yeah. It, it makes you wonder. You know, I'm, I'm just saying, it's thought for food, man. I mean, unless you're dead, then there's no thought or food, no. unless you become food, which, you know. Well, let's, let's be too dark. I actually kind of want that for myself. That you become food. Yeah. So there's this thing where you can get for yourself. For other humans? No, heavens no. Oh, okay. Uh, Jeez. That's absolutely necessary. But no, no, no. Um, you can get your body put into like a giant kind of urn and then they'll plant the tree in it oh. somewhere. So the tree will essentially nourish itself Ugh. on you. But that's normal because, you know, the flora and fauna of the earth I have consumed my entire yeah. life. And then eventually maybe it's only fair that when I die, I can go back into the earth and become flora and, and food for the flora and fauna. So in other words, you're going to become, in essence, a pile of shit. Did you know that over $5 trillion exchanges hands on a daily basis? That's an average of over $220 billion an hour. Now, how does this much money move every single day, and why does it move the way it does? Here on Drunkonomics, two bartenders, who also happen to be students at the University of Nebraska Graduate School of Business, are going to sit down and drink to the global economy, and try and translate it into English. So sit back, relax, pour yourself a stiff one, and have a drink with us to the comedy that is the global economy. All right, guys, welcome back to Drunkonomics. Uh, Aaron and I have sat down again. We, let's say this. A few we've, drinks in hand. Uh, we've experienced a little bit of technical difficulties this week. In other words, our so ice that's machine. That's why today's a little late. Yeah, in other words, our ice machine broke, so we couldn't really drink. I know. Warm margaritas. Are you crazy? Yeah. So anyways, uh, happy Cinco de Mayo week. Before we get started. We got a question. One of our great followers on Twitter should ask a question. Give me a second to pull it up because I, w- I didn't have it ready because my tweeting hand was my drinking hand for a second. Yeah, he's only, he's he can't use both hands, guys. It's, yeah. it's really kind of hey, sad. Hey, dude, I try. Okay, so here it is. Guy with the Twitter handle, guy or gal, don't know, um, at one concilium. I, I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong. Um, you appear to be German, which uh, Vosmox do. He tweeted at us and said, just listen to the episode while I was driving to work. He said some nice things about our podcast. And then he said, what do you think? Why are there states which are doing so much better than other with their debt to GDP rate? And can other states, quote unquote, learn something from states like Norway, Estonia, Hong Kong, Luxembourg? So first part of the question, why are states doing better with their debt to GDP rate? I feel like I have an answer, but you're smarter than me, so I'll let you answer that. I mean, I'm interested in hearing yours too. I think the easiest way to kind of look at it is these countries, well, Two of them, one's a city state in Hong Kong. One is right. very, very small in Luxembourg. Estonia is not much bigger. And then Norway is substantially bigger in landmass, but much smaller in terms of population centers and where they are. So I would suggest that a portion of that is that they don't have to spend as much. They have lower expenditures on a lot of infrastructure that you would see as necessary in, say, the United States, Germany, France, places with a lot more landmass. You also have, and this is the bigger issue I think at hand, with the exception of Hong Kong, which doesn't have a military. The others have much smaller militaries than, Mm -hmm. say, the United States. But they also, and this is with kind of the exception of Estonia, they all tend to have much higher tax rates. You know, Luxembourg has 23 brackets, the highest, you know, 23 brackets, 23 different scaling brackets. How many do we have? 11? We have, oh gosh, five or six. No way. I thought it was. Well, we've got, then you've got like married filing jointly married, but those, but those just change, those just double your numbers or give you a portion but essentially, in terms of actual like bracketed rates, percentage rates, there's only five or six. Really? Yeah, we don't have many. Well, you're the tax accountant guy. So but the yeah. the highest, um, you know, the highest tax bracket you'll see in the U.S. is is about thirty seven, thirty eight percent. Highest in Luxembourg's forty two percent. I'm sorry, Estonia. Um, I guess they only do twenty one percent as their highest. Luxembourg goes up to forty two percent. Norway. Norway's got um, some crazy taxes, don't they? There's the base, and then there's the step tax. But they start at 22%, right? So they start at a pretty high, uh, high tax. So what you see is they don't, they have substantially more tax receipts or much higher tax receipts. 
And so they don't need to fund as much of their expenditures with debt. Yeah. And that's kind of my theory too, is like, if you're not spending as much money as states like Germany, the US- And the United Japan, States has seven tax brackets. Yeah. If you're not spending as much money as those states and you have higher tax rates, so you're receiving more per capita, hypothetically, obviously. Well, you pay um, more in taxes, but you're receiving more in services. Yeah. So, But they also don't spend as much as, say, like the US and Japan does on social services, the military. I mean, the U.S. spends like- Oh, the last, entitlements are very expensive in the United right, States. Right, yeah. Like the social programs are absolutely absurd in the U.S. Uh, as far as like how much you spend on them. And then our military spending is like, what, maybe a third of our total government spending or that something like that? Or maybe a quarter. 20, 20, 25%, really. Yeah. yeah. So it, it is. It's For me, I would say it's this argument that they have substantially greater revenue. And so yeah. they don't need to fund- their expenditure with debt. Yeah. That's that's and, how they've done it. You know, and I'm not trying to dog on those other countries too, but maybe their debt isn't as enticing as say US. I mean, US debt is is the most enticing. It's safe. Debt. It's extremely safe. Yeah. So, for instance, if there is a phenomenal businessman or whatever, if there's a guy that's like, you know, everything he touches turns to gold, you want to loan this guy. You for sure want to lend this guy money to help you reinvest your money. And then you make money off of your credit to that guy, you know, and that's kind of like the US. The US is really supposedly very good with money, supposedly. <laughs> and, um, but it's like any good businessman, like it's a good businessman has no fear of over leveraging themselves because one, they know how to, they know how to structure debt, but two, they're good at paying their debts back. Well, they're going to take, the, they're going to take the money that they've, this money that they've earned by issuing debt, and they're going to turn that into profit that allows them to right exactly to repay that debt as well as make something for themselves right, that exactly. they can hold on to. So it's a, so like we were talking about last week, debt is a tool right. that gives you a means to create more wealth or, or to acquire more things, thus expanding your economic ability. Yeah, I mean, if there's a guy that knows how to run bars like no one else, and he asks you for two hundred thousand dollars, if you assume that you have two hundred thousand dollars laying around. You would have no problem loaning it to this guy because you know that this guy's going to turn it into a cash cow, you know. And that's to say yeah. that this person's debt is very valuable. It's a, it's a great asset to own. Well, because because um, remember the debt that they create for themselves is equity for you. Exactly. One man's debt is another man's asset. It stays in your asset side of your balance sheet. Yeah, I'm giving up cash, but I'm creating a receivable or I'm right. of some sort. So, and that's not the dog on those countries like Estonia, Norway. Hong Kong and uh, Luxembourg, it's just maybe their debt isn't as valuable to investors as say US debt or French or Italian or Japanese debt. That well, might have a factor. It's also that it. they don't need to issue it. So they don't, right? So you they necessarily have a very small amount of debt. So it's a very finite thing out there. But you also kind of look at it and maybe they're saying, well, we don't need to do this debt, but we can't, but we're going to for whatever reason. And so they're offering perhaps a, a less appetizing interest rate, a lower yield on their right, bond. Yeah. And so then you that's where you probably, I mean, not that the US bond, I mean, at least the US is theoretically positive in terms of its yields right now, given unlike you know, the Germans and the- It's not negative or, ja or Japan. Or Japan, yeah. yeah. Which, so, you know, because the, the Bund is negative. Yeah. I don't um, know what, I haven't looked at the Japanese long-term I think the yields. French was negative as well last yeah, time I, I know. Well, I know German and French long-term yields are negative. I don't know about, I don't know anything about the Japanese long-term yields. I haven't, I mean, I haven't. Well, it doesn't matter because I don't want to yeah. touch on this question for too long. I'm sorry if that didn't answer your question, so but the, I hope it did. I suppose the answer would be, or at least the answer from where I'm sitting is, yeah, you can, there's one lesson you can learn. It's if you have more tax receipts, you don't have to borrow as much money to fund your expenditures. So yeah, yeah raise, raising taxes and you can lower your debt yeah, ratios it's, it's, usually. It, it's essentially just two sides of every coin, you know, either lower your expenditures or increase your tax receipts and be more responsible with debt. But anyways, uh, at one concilium, I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong, man. I really do. I really am. But uh, hope that answers your question. But for now, I'd like to move on to the real meat and potatoes. Before I do, I have to give another shout out to our podcast network, Creative Brain Candy. They've done a, a great job for us. They've been tremendously helpful on helping us get set up, helping us with our merch and everything. Um, if you have any questions, feel free to tweet at us at Drunkonomical. Please tweet at us, DM us on Instagram, Facebook, whatever. All of Wherever our social, you find us, yeah. yeah. All of our social media handles are at Drunkonomical. Spell it out. It's not, shouldn't be that hard. I mean, I don't know. It's harder whatever. for us at the end of the episode than the beginning. Yeah, that much. <laughs> you can see that much at the very least. Anyways, moving on to uh, the meat and potatoes. Today's topic of interest is uh, debt. Isn't that interesting? It can be if you're <laughs> the one who owns it. Yeah. Uh, we promised last week that we were going to talk about the power of debt, corporate debt bubbles, 
or debt bubbles in general. We got drunk instead. Yeah. So and we got way off topic. We're still doing that today, mind you. So don't under no circumstances should you believe that we have not been. Yeah. Drinking. Well, as of recording, it is the day after Cinco de Mayo, and I'm not. I'm not gonna lie, man. Yesterday for Cinco de Mayo was not the typical Cinco de Mayo celebration for me. I didn't didn't go ham. I didn't either. We. I mean, we did tacos. Yeah, I know. So I feel like I need to make up for that by. I'm doing not this drinking episode. tequila. <laughs> I'm not doing tequila right now. You know, now. I didn't. Yeah, I'm not doing tequila either. I'm. It needs to get warmer outside for us to do tequila. Yeah, it's a little overcast today. It was a little chilly yeah. when we came yeah, in. Yeah, but anyways, corporate debt. If you don't know, corporate debt in the last what twelve years has gone absolutely insane, especially since the 2008 global financial crisis. Absolutely, corporate debt pretty much went from a really insignificant figure from I don't know what it was initially to, and this is just the U.S. corporate debt or the corporate bond market is now at $2 trillion. Mm-hmm. What problems does this raise? Quite a few, yeah. depending on where it is. So um, as a portion of total U.S. debt, it's $10 trillion. So $10 trillion in total U.S. corporate debt is apparently the number, which is 40 for- Which 40. is what it is right now? As of December of, of December 2019, you know, yeah. before, well, yeah, before, we, before we knew how bad things were really going to get. It's well, the, worse now. Yeah, well, it's got to be worse The now. figures I was looking at was 2018 figures. And I know midway through last year, not midway through last year, but September of 2019, there was a record week where we saw corporate debt issuance of like insane figures. How do we get here? It's a very, very long story. I feel like the very first part of the story, I would say, is lower interest rates. As soon as lower interest rates became a thing, all these corporations were like, you know what? We can, this is a good time for us to refinance our debt. Normally, when you take on $2 trillion of debt, it's a good and a bad sign because one, yeah, you're increasing liabilities, but two, it's a good sign because normally corporations take this giant pool of cash that they finance from debt and they create jobs, they reinvest into their company, and they expand and they pursue growth opportunities. However, last year, what they did instead was they refinanced the debt. They took on more debt at a lower interest rate. Paid off old debt at higher interest old, rates. Yeah, they paid off higher interest rate debt, and they did a lot of share buybacks. Absolutely. So Yeah, it's, well, and that's good business decision. That's good business. If I can borrow the same amount of money for a cheaper rate, I should. So that's a positive thing. But there's... Um, Corporate debt expanding to what it is. I mean, it, it is a giant bubble now. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. And so we got here kind of a few ways. So the first thing is we have to think about who consumes these bonds, these corporate bonds, these private bonds. So, yeah, a portion of it is purchased by foreign governments, foreign companies. But the vast majority of it, we would say, is, is going to be purchased within the United States. And the main consumer in the United States, there's going to be kind of two ones. There's you have institutions like banks, mm-hmm. which are looking for that revenue stream, right? So most bonds that we, we talk about now are bonds that have a coupon. So a mm-hmm. coupon payment, which means that in the easiest way to describe this is a bond is $1,000. You give $1,000 to the company, they give you a bond. This is all done electronically now, although they can be tracked yeah. with numbers and everything else, but there's usually no physical bond anymore. They will give you this bond and it says that on a certain date, so the expiration date of the bond or the term date, you can go back to that company, it will give you your $1,000 back. And then, and this is all assuming that you put in a thousand dollars to begin with. No, a bond is going to pay out a thousand dollars unless otherwise stated. So, right, every bond is a thousand dollars, and on its term, but how much? How much are you buying the bond for? That okay. So that depends on interest rates and okay. other things. So that that's not like talk about that in a second too. But this is how we. Um, so we get here. So we have this bond. It's worth a thousand dollars at a future date. I give them some amount of money now. Let's just say. For ease of sake of ease, a thousand dollars. Well, why am I giving you a thousand dollars to receive a thousand dollars later? If we ignore time value of money, which is what causes is, our price differences at purchase point, it's a very important factor in it all is, finance and absolutely. economics. But and we'll talk about that if we haven't already at some <laughs> point, or at least we'll dedicate some some more time to it. Um, at some point, you're going to go. Why don't I just give them a thousand dollars to get a thousand dollars back and at a later date? Because now I can't spend that money. What was the point of all that? So the company has the coupon on the bond, which says essentially that they're going to pay you interest every year on the money they've borrowed from you. So they're going to say maybe well, we'll pay you three percent interest. So every year that means that they're, so let's just say it's a, it's an annual bond paying out once a year. They're going to give you thirty dollars every year for taking your money. Mm-hmm. Now, when it's one bond, that's not very much. It's kind of silly, yeah. but if I can now turn around and maybe I have a hundred bonds or a thousand bonds, well, now that $30, that's a lot of money. And it's also pretty substantial cash flow for me. Yeah. I can look at that as revenue. Well, I've put some money aside. I'm receiving revenue. 
So that's, that's how the coupon bond is going to work. Right. Now, why are they consumed and who consumes them? Well, you have banking institutions, which are looking to lower the risk in portfolios. The easiest way to do that is bonds. Yeah. Bonds are generally very safe assets. Bonds are very safe because at the very least, unless, I mean, there's always risk with bonds, there's risk with everything, but bonds essentially, if we assume in a perfect world, they will always pay out. Yeah. So that's, that's your first buyer is someone trying to lower risk in portfolios. The second buyer, and this is a big one are your insurance companies. So your life insurance companies. Yeah. So they're going to take your premiums. They know when they issued your policy that you're 30 and it's a life insurance claim. So unless there's some, you know, something really happens to you soon, they've probably got 50 years to invest and reinvest this money in bonds and other things to get the revenue to make that payout, but also to be profitable prior to that. Yeah. So these are your two big consumers. And what they want is yield. They want that payout. And w- at one point we'll have... Just an episode on insurance, just because oh, yeah. the business model of insurance is kind of crazy, and that'll take literally an hour to just just it talk will because we're gonna and but, we're gonna talk about a few different types of insurance. So like we're yeah. gonna talk about liability insurance versus yeah, property yeah. insurance versus life mention, insurance. Yeah, and then like you know like you know on the insurance company side, as far as the cash flows and the residuals that they receive, uh-huh. how, how are those time valued? What are those invested and in? That's where we're going to have what? to find some actuarial scientist to come in and explain yeah, certain no. statistical data to yeah, us. But anyways, back to debt. The, the risk in debt. Well, there's there's always a risk when you're when you're loaning someone money, and the risk is yeah. always that they won't. Yeah. So there's a fancy word for um, the risk in debt, and that is essentially when the debt holder doesn't pay back their payments. They won't pay you. That back. is a fancy word that you have probably heard, and the word is default. So, so what you need to look at a lot of the times is another it's another little phrase that gets used and it's called well, at risk debt. Yeah, at risk debt. And if you want to look at it from yeah, an accounting at- from an accounting standpoint, debt payments are essentially receivables, your allowance for default accounts, mm-hmm. which we talked about in yep, another. Yeah, it's episodes. a contra asset. So, so I have to at some point say, I think there's a possibility that they're not going to pay me back. I need oh, to offset them yeah. and lower expectations. So when you're talking about risk and debt, how is risk judged? How is risk assessed? Well, there is this this fancy group of people called uh, ratings in the ratings agencies. They're worldwide, oh, they're worldwide. but like Moody's and S&P, they're all based in New York City. And um, they have this system where it goes from A to B, and then anything below B is technically not, is considered not- Anything below triple B. Anything below triple B, It's considered yeah. not investment yeah. grade. Investment grade basically means you're going to get your money back. Not At really. least- yeah, at, you're at least probably going to get your money yeah, back. Within it's not, a degree it's, of, of statistical likelihood, you're yeah, going to, exactly. this With, is safe. Yeah, there's a certain standard deviation, but the lower rated a certain bond is, the higher yield it is. So if you ever hear this, this term that gets thrown around, it's called junk bond. Junk bond sounds like a really trashy thing, I know, but um, junk bonds are essentially- This is the big risk, big reward. Yeah, junk bonds bond. are essentially just high yield bonds. Yeah. Now, yield, we're talking, they're going to they're gonna give a very high coupon percentage rate. They're yeah, going to pay they're, a lot in interest. Yeah, they might be high paying- High yield, high coupon, high return. paying six, seven, eight percent versus, versus a 2%, 2% or, from a treasury you know, yeah. over the same period. And it's essentially them saying, we accept that there is risk associated with your investment with us, so we're going to make it worth your while yeah. now. So junk bonds generally have really, really high yields. If you invest in a junk bond with a really well-run company and a really- debt responsible company, you're going to make a lot of money investing in a certain junk bond or whatever that you're going to make your yield back and it's, you're going to be happy with it. There's also a thing called equity risk premium. Equity risk premium is essentially because equity is a lot riskier than debt. So the equity risk premium is generally the average, it's, it's a cap M or capital asset pricing model factor. It's a number, it's, it's a number that basically means like, this is the average return for investing in equities. This is the average return investing in debt. The difference between that is is called the equity risk premium. That's that's it. It's uh, why is that such a fancy word? I have no idea. Well, why if, is, I, if we don't use fancy words, people know. If we explain exactly what it is as we're describing it, people are going to know what it is, and they don't need us. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's how we that's how drunken hours creates demand. Is we define terms like equity risk premium. So yeah, equity risk premium is just basically the difference if you choose to invest in equity as opposed to debt. Usually that number is always higher. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if and if we want to use a company as an example, and I don't think they're rated as junk yet, but I know that after a massive sale and given current economic conditions, they're they're expecting a downgrade. But Boeing is expecting to downgrade their bond status to junk. Well, did you see what happened with Boeing recently? Is someone recently came in and bought twenty five billion dollars in Boeing bonds? Yeah, that's a. Um, I don't know who is doing. Shine Oakmont, dude. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was gonna say yes. I don't know I don't know who's doing that, but it sounds like a um Oh dude, I'm pretty sure that was Bernie Madoff's fund. Bernie and doing shit from prison. He's trying to get out with cancer, and frankly, if I haven't said this enough, throw him under the jail, he doesn't get out. <laughs> but yeah, someone bought twenty five billion dollars in Boeing bonds. So that's why they weren't seeking after that. The federal government. Yeah, it's because they think they're going to be able to take 25 billion. And that's, you know, I'm glad that they're trying to avoid the need for a government bailout and they're trying market means to drum up liquidity. I appreciate that. I I think it's probably a good choice because I know they've made some other purchases in the past to maintain managerial control of the company. Yeah, well, I, I feel like, you know, this is kind of an opportunity for some giant market making firm or some giant capital asset management firm to be like, you know what, this is an opportunity to buy Boeing while it's cheap. If they stay alive. Well, I would, I mean, I'd want to look at the types of bonds because if they're convertible bonds, that could be a really, really nice investment. So a convertible bond is another type of bond. And it's one that at maturity, you have one of two options. You can either collect the cash and be out and their debts retired or or at a certain certain price, they will convert whatever your, whatever the amount was at a prearranged price into equity. So into shares of the Yeah, they'll convert into equity. And usually if they have a payout of like a thousand dollars, they'll probably give you like twelve hundred dollars worth of equity. Mm-hmm. So like, you know what? We'll hang on to this cash. Yeah. Right? It allows them to hold on to the cash and it allows you to become an owner who's now entitled to dividends as opposed to the previous Assuming uh, that they do pay payments. dividends. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you're still entitled to sharing the profits as an owner. There you go. Yeah. It's when they issue dividends, if and when they issue dividends that you actually get to collect on that share. Right. On yeah. that share you on that portion you get to claim. So how do we get a bubble out of this, right? Because it seems kind of boring. Oh, and yeah, we're going to move on to that. Subject. So how do yeah. we get a bubble? All right. So if we think about who these two, the two major consumers of these bonds of bonds are, right? We have insurance companies looking for the revenue from the interest payouts and the coupon pay or the coupon payouts. And we've got banks looking to take the sting off the risk in portfolios that they're managing for yeah. clients. And this is also hedge funds. So when I say like institutional investors, that's who I'm talking about. They're trying to ease the downside mm-hmm. on investments. And so U.S. government bonds have been paying out very low yield for a very long time. In fact, there's zero right now. We've gone to the point where now they're, like interest rates are zero. So bonds are being issued at not a fantastic return rate. And so you've got these bankers and you've got these insurance companies, these investors, and you have the insurance guys looking at it and they're going, and it's really the insurance guys saying, we depend on these interest payments for our cash flows. Like that's how the model works. And if there's no payout happening, they're in trouble. Oh, like yeah. that's because, you know, they need that constant flow back of cash to keep the business model going. Yeah. And so what's happening? Well, at the same time that these guys need to consume these bonds, government ones aren't looking very sexy. Corporate ones are. Okay. So walk me through the cycle of buying a bond. So if I wanted to buy a bond, because mm-hmm. I've never been on the market for bonds, but if I buy a bond, you know, I'm putting forth $1,000, let's say $1,000 okay. into buying a certain bond. Yep. The other side, the receiver of the $1,000, how are they amortizing that? Are they paying me monthly? And at the end of that, they're paying me- No. All- so they're, okay, they're going to pay you, so with our back to our annual bond, they're going to pay you an annual payment of interest, $30, $40, 50 per bond. Okay, right? yeah. So if and I- And then at the end, at the term, at the, at the end of the life of the bond, they're going to send you a check for the final amount of interest and the $1,000. Okay. So as far as my cash flows until that date when that bond matures- It's just the little, it's just the small interest payments. Okay. And then the day the bond matures- they give me. Th- they give you the principal thousand- back, there all back okay. at the end. Yeah. So hopefully that clarifies. Fi- so that's that that's how it works. Things. So essentially, you're looking at small payment, small payment, small payment, small payment of interest, and then fi- at the very end, small payment of interest and and your thousand dollar that you put down for the bond back. Right. So all the cash comes back. Okay. To you. So back to how bubbles get built. So you have we've just we've identified our consumers now, yeah. and they are looking to consume these. And so in the same way that kind of the housing bubble formed, which was I'll write a mortgage. Someone's going to buy the mortgage and it'll get packaged into a security later. These companies, these insurance companies, these bankers, they're making a huge amount of money in stock market growth. If we think about what was happening 2010, 2016, 2017, real market acceleration, you know, the longest bull market in history. They need more and more bonds then to satisfy the risk. And so companies realize I don't need to do equity financing quite so much as I used to. I don't need to do, I don't need to take a note. I don't need to borrow money straight from the bank or get a credit line. 
I can just issue debt and I can issue it. Yeah. At a, at an interest rate that's sustainable for them when they project future growth and they go, this really won't be anything. It won't be a big deal. And then they'll, they also do it with the understanding that towards the period where they, the bonds are going to expire, they can go, well, I can always, if markets get substantially better, like, or if, I shouldn't say better, if interest rates get a lot lower, yeah. I'll, I'll issue new debt at a much lower coupon payment out to these people because they're still getting better than the market. They're still getting better than just putting the money in their, in their savings account. I'll give them lower than I'm currently paying them. I'll borrow money and I can actually pay off then my old debt with this. So essentially it's, it's for lack of better terms, it's, and I don't want to use this phrase to make it sound like I don't think bonds are good, but it's robbing <laughs> Peter to pay Paul. It's yeah. saying, fine, I'll take the same money from you. I'll pay off my old debt. I owe you guys well, now, but I don't owe you guys for five years now, whereas I owe these guys in two years. Yeah. Well, in the same sense of equity sharing, there's debt sharing. Mm-hmm. So corporations that issue banks, for instance, that have debt that's securitized yep. to finance their amortization, they can sell you portions of that debt. They can sell you, the average oh, yeah. investor, portions of that debt. Yeah, slices of it. To, yeah, so so there's so always a buyer. So essentially, you if you borrow money from someone and then you're investing in a fund or, or you may actually be investing in yourself paying back the bank. Yeah. Right. So, it's, and that's what happened in 2008 because they securitized all these mortgage payments. Which led to, so if we look at what happened in 2008, you have AAA rating, which we still, which have in bonds, right? So your yeah. AAA rating, which isn't paying back very much, but it's safe. You're getting your money back. You know it. Yeah. And then you run that well, down the, to triple B and then anything below it. And then you have double B and B and double B and B are the not investment grade junk bonds that we've been talking about. Yeah. In mortgages, they would be called subprime, mm-hmm. right? Eventually, when the demand for bonds becomes so much, well, these well-run companies that are getting AAA ratings, they're not just going to put out bonds because they can. They only do it for a purpose. There's always a business purpose. But weaker companies, companies that don't have the same same business model or the same profitability, the same access to other methods of financing, they need to use bonds. And so they do, and they issue a lot of them. Hence, they have double B and single B rating. But when there's a (laughs) consumer that needs these for whatever other product they're packaging. Mm-hmm. Well, if there's a buyer, the seller doesn't really yeah, care. Like, so not? it becomes, I would imagine if you're one of those companies, it would become kind of um, seductive to be issuing these bonds yeah. and then being able to, like like these shale oil companies, essentially they've been financing, you know, between bank loans and bonds, they've been financing, they finance an expanded US oil production into the US being a net oil exporter on the backs of debt, which coincidentally comes due next year. Very coincidentally. So that's yeah. a problem. That's why nine of that, I think nine... Nine of the oil firms have declared bankruptcy in the last three months. Yeah. So essentially, like bubbles are essentially defined by you have, you have you have equity bubbles, which are runaway valuations. Well, equity bubbles are essentially, you know, what we think the growth is way bigger than it actually is, or we think whatever is going on is is sustainable when it's not. Mm-hmm. And a lot of equity valuation does come in growth rates, right? So if you think a company is going to grow at Fifty percent versus twelve percent or five percent, right? There's a pretty big variance in what your value is there. Giant variance there. You know, like for for instance, Lyft, right? Lyft the stock. If if we think that stock is going to grow at fifty percent, or we think the company is going to grow at fifty percent, I'm going to value that stock way higher than the person that thinks it's going to grow at 12%. And, you know, we can do our calculations and we can figure out what, what the stock price is now what based off- And what we're willing to pay. Yeah, or what we're willing to pay based off of what the growth rate that we project. Mm-hmm. And that's a way how equity bubbles can form. That's, that's one, one way. That's one of several, yeah. yeah. And there's one of millions of- or Oh, yeah. Several there's also ways. the, you know, you have tulip mania, which is just speculation and people think it's going to, the values can't, are going to keep going up. So Yeah, or a bunch of followers saying like, oh, Warren Buffett bought this. Well, now oh, I yeah, want to buy might, it. You know, yeah, he, so. he may have bought it for a legitimately calculated reason, but other people are just piling on because yeah. he did. Debt bubbles, for instance, though, they, they don't really- So debt bubbles- And bubbles form because- Everybody's rushing yeah, towards- Yeah, there's, there's too much cash in, so there, there's too much money going in, so prices go up, so there's a perception of value there because people were paying well, for it. Well, it goes on to the premise of supply and demand. Yeah, but when dem- it's essentially demand is exceeding supply. Yeah. For whatever Oh, that's reason. exactly what it is, yeah. Um, issue with debt bubbles, though, is that eventually- the money does have to get paid back. Yeah. And so the concern with, you know, a bubble, we consider a bubble bad because it pops, right? Yeah. If it doesn't pop, then it's just growth. The Which reason and the problem with growth- Is also skeptical, but- Well, yeah, but the problem with runaway growth is that in the medical community, runaway growth is called cancer, mm-hmm. right? Oh, wow. That's a really great analogy. So- Also a sickening analogy, but literally sickening. Hashtag got him. <laughs> 
Uh, so the problem with the bubbles is when it pops and the way it pops is the company that has issued the debt is unable to pay. So we've got 2 billion. Let's just say we've got 10 billion in debt in the US. We've got 2 billion in bonds. Or t- mm-hmm. I'm sorry, trillion, trillion, trillion yeah. 10 trillion in debt, 2 trillion in bonds. Let's say that only a tenth of it is junk. It's more, but let's say only a tenth. Do you know what the actual ratio is as far as what is junk and what isn't? I don't. Um, so, okay, let's say that 10% of the entire bond market is junk, and that's low. And so 10% of 2 trillion is what? 200 billion? So if $200 billion next year, for example, is unpayable, that's $200 billion that will disappear and it's going to hurt everyone who's invested in it, right? Because that's $200 billion they're sitting here and it's, they had on their books saying, this is a receivable of cash I can expect in 2021. And then suddenly they have to write it all off their books. But the real problem is, because it's not just going to be the one-year bond that's due, it's, there's also a two-year bond that comes due next year and there's a five-year bond that's due in four years' time. So a company that is unable to pay its debts now is not going to be able to pay its debts later either. So you've got five, 10, 15-year bonds maybe. You know, Boeing in their issuances. Some of those were 40-year bonds. Now, I'm not saying Boeing's going to go anywhere, but I'm saying, they're that, not. They're never but I'm saying that if they can't pay their one year, there's very little chance they're going to be able to pay the 40-year. So now you've got huge chunks of bonds that are now worthless. But that's assuming that within those 40 years, they don't receive a giant pool of cash from whether it's operational activities or whatever it is. So they could receive a giant pool of cash and then- They're, those, not, they're not going to. So those 40-year investors could seek refinancing opportunities. Well, they have to get when, past the- whatever it is. I don't well, so know. The, pro- so the problem is that what, what happens immediately is if, if, I'm the, um, if I'm the bond investor and they have just defaulted on the bond, because of how bonds work, if a company can't meet its liabilities, it needs to enter bankruptcy protection. Oof, That's, yeah. they, have to, they can't just not pay. They have to enter bankruptcy protection to protect them from the, their creditors. As someone who bought their bonds, I am their creditor, one of their creditors. Yeah. So they have a few options about which bankruptcy they're going to go into. They can go into several of the, uh, they can do, I think I want to say chapter 11, which is a- Chapter uh, 11, isn't that like corporate bankruptcy? I don't know what that is. No, that's with you. Yeah. So they, so they can, there's several chapters of the bankruptcy book and they can file for bankruptcy to protect themselves from creditors while they reform the company. Now, what'll happen there is usually there's some sort of mediator and the mediator is going to come to the class of investors who have been defaulted on and they're going to say, look, we can't give you all your money. We're mainly going to be able to 50 cents on the dollar. So your $1,000 just became 500 and that's still extreme. Yes, but- as a creditor, you'll get your five hundred dollars back. I, a, a creditor five hundred out of your thousand. A creditor back. will be made whole or attempted to be made whole long before an owner. An equity holder. An equity yeah, holder equity does holder. not yeah. have that same protection. An equity holder might get a penny on the dollar. Yeah. Now th- that only really matters in the event of of a bankruptcy liquidation. Yeah. Which is to say, this company is not going to survive. No amount of restructuring is going to make this company profitable. We need to liquidate all its assets and sell them to whoever's buying. And then we're going to take that pool of cash and we're going to make the creditors whole. And then we'll make, we'll try and give owners a taste back. Generally speaking, if you're under a reformation, yeah, they'll probably extend the bonds or they'll give you an offer to convert to equity so you can then control management. But that's also their way but, of escaping their cash obligations to you saying like, hey, you're a debt holder. I don't want to pay you your $500. Yeah. So they might approach well, and say, could, it's not to say I don't, they don't want to, but it's probably more apt to say, I can't. I can't. I don't have, the, I don't have the means to. Would you be willing to become a shareholder? And well, it's often- It's kind of like what PG&E did when they filed for bankruptcy like, yeah. a couple of years ago or whatever. Right? Yeah. So the problem that you run into is this bubble is that banks are making a lot of money with bond markets. They make a lot of their income, their passive revenue from those payments, those interest payments. Yeah. The bubble pops when it becomes very obvious that a whole sector of the economy's bonds are worthless. Yeah. Which to me rises a giant concern because if you think about it, like, you know, one thing we really wanted to touch on was the effects of a debt bubble popping, right? And we saw and that in 2008. We did see so that. That's what we really saw. And 2008 was an absolute catastrophe. Granted for me, well, I was- it, it came in, it came in hand in hand with the liquidity crisis. Right, yeah. Granted for me, I was only 14 years old, so it didn't affect me. It's a little older than yeah. that. Yeah, it didn't affect me at all. And my parents were, didn't spill over on it. Yeah, my, my family was not, well, my family- was fine. I mean, my, I my family, that, like it, it did hurt my family. I'm not going to lie, but uh, yeah, you know, me as a 14 year old kid that was trying to play college golf, you know, it didn't really affect me. I was still playing in tournaments all over the country. Yeah. So, um, but uh, the crazy thing now is 
the U.S. corporate debt bubble, and this is, these are 2018 or 2019 figures. I forget when when it was. The U.S. corporate debt is now at 45 percent. 47 was what I saw. 47 percent. Oh Approximately 47 percent of the GDP. Yes. Or, yeah. It's what I saw, debt. The figure I saw was 45 percent of the GDP. Now that figure to me is absolutely alarming. It is, and it should be. That's a bubble. But, so when that bubble pops, because I don't know what it was in 2008. I can it's, almost, it's worse than 2008. I can almost guarantee you, yeah, I can almost guarantee you it was not 45%. No, no the, housing market, the housing market was not 47% of the GDP of this country. Yeah, even the housing bubble wasn't no, 47%. not even close. Yeah, so you're talking about nearly half of the, of yeah, the US half, GDP is riding on US corporate is, is, debt. Is, it's a financial instrument. Which can be very powerful. It's, it's so the issue, as we see rising debt in corporations is beginning your problem is that you have to be able to service your debt, which yeah. is to say you have to be able to pay the interest, right? Make the minimum payment, essentially. As long as you could afford to do that, you're okay, unless you need to borrow more then. So it becomes a vicious cycle. Well, and, and the whole premise of debt is like, I'm not going to loan you money unless I know you're making money. And if you do lend into a hole, it needs to be someone who's got a shovel down there and is going... I know how to dig my way yeah, out. Yeah, or look, I have these plates of gold. So like if I can't pay back and I can't honor my payments, like yeah. you can have this. You have a secured bond, so you right. secure it against some asset the company Yeah, has. there's a collateral involved. Yeah. So no, you're right. As a whole, we would not, you do not lend money to someone that has no method of paying you back. Right. Which is how we got into trouble in 2008 was they yeah. were loaning money to buy a house. No people who had no, who had no hope no of income verification, it. No credit validation, whatever. Nothing, yeah. yeah no, no income, no job. Ninja you know? loans, yeah. yeah. As we see it with bonds and with corporations now, they're funding a lot of expansion on debt. And I, I know I've been picking on the oil industry for the last month and a half. And <laughs> frankly, with the fact that their futures went negative, I think uh, I'm allowed I don't to. Think, I don't think you're not substantiated. Well, but. here's the thing. In 2021, their bonds start coming due. As of now, the underlying assets that have secured those bonds are not worth it, which is oil. They, what they've said is we yeah. have oil. And it used to be, okay, yeah, oil was worth $70, $80 a barrel. That's a good collateral. Yeah, it used to be a great asset to now it's collateralize again. And it's like, but. now, you know, you've got these banks and, and there's the bonds that you know, individual investors and, and the major investors have, have purchased into. But then you have to also consider the fact that the bonds are just one side of it. Banks have also loaned obscene quantities of money to these firms just obscene, as notes, like, like as actual bank loans. And so these are banks now that are sitting here going... There's a lot of money tied up in that specifically in an industry that isn't, the value's not there. But the issue becomes you've got whole sectors kind of swirling a drain or that where, we, where we can see if current um, economic issues stay as they are. If oil remains depressed in value, and I don't see a reason it wouldn't, next year when on the books of a company, um, the second it's less than one year for that debt to be due, then it becomes current debt yeah. when it's within a year of being paid. And my concern and is- That's a we, really attractive thing to see on your balance sheet. but Especially when you start doing the ratios. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The current you ratios. Go, how much cash do I have this much? How much inventory do I have at market value Which, you this know, much? Anymore, like right now, especially given the economic times that we're in. It's hard to find a value for your inventory. Yeah, and not to mention inventory, like how much of a current asset can you consider inventory? So you know? it, it depends on your on your market. Like it depends on your business. I, I so understand, like, but it's tough. Especially for like airlines. What's their inventory? Their inventory, well, their revenues, their inventory is the passengers. Well, they, so that, well, they don't so, have inventory. They have they provide service. So they, yeah, they, but they have service revenue. But, techni but technically, they have inventories also. Technically, like, there's, in regards to their supply chain, their inventory are passengers. It's the seats. Okay, yeah. Right? They, so, they need to fill seats. They need butts yeah. and seats. So like, you know, when you're judging inventory, as far as your inventory in hand, your current assets, it's a really relative thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's super relative in terms of whether you're distinguishing difference between that and, you know, other current assets. Yeah. What if, no, what if your course. certain inventory has a shelf life of oh, yeah. five years and, if and the beer, cost if, of holding well, it is- Well, so here's the thing. The inventory here- the liquor's probably fine, but the beer in the bar, or at least the bottled and canned beer, that has an expiration date. It's going to go bad eventually. It's going to go bad in the, the year. The keg beer, you know? well, I mean, there's a reason a lot of taps are down. Most have gone flat in this crisis. Yeah. So this is inventory that we are still holding on our books, but that we can't sell in good conscience. When we, we say we, it's our, it's, our, uh, the it's our bar. Yeah. As the, uh, yeah, it's the bar that we work at. We're recording from if it. If you listen to the intro, we're both bartenders. At the same and bar. we're recording here. So, We've done some work today. So yeah. but inventory can go bad. If you're not turning over your inventory, if you can't sell your inventory, you can't count that. Yeah, exactly. So when it comes to those current ratios, like you were saying earlier, 
like how do you evaluate those? How do you weigh those? I think you end up especially at a point, with your current debt. Well, you know you how know. much you own. You know how much cash you got. That's where you're going to start, and it's going to be really, really. I mean, banks are going to do what they can. They're going to have to. And this, there's a reason that everyone's mortgage has had a three month deferment well, right it, now, it, and it's because it's because the banks have been told in no uncertain terms you cannot collect. Ignore that revenue. Pretend it's not something you need. They'll take it off their books. Taxes. Yeah, which is crazy because mortgage companies have fixed costs too. But anyways, well, yeah, but there's a point where they go twenty point four million jobs lost. Well, twenty point four million new unemployment claims in April. We get a new jobs report tomorrow. Yeah, and this leads me to you loan out all this money. You look Mm -hmm. at your current cash obligations, such as debt, accounts payable, whatever. So you look at all those obligations. And you're not receiving money from the credit that you lent out because no one, right. can, no one can pay their money back because, because no one's working. I mean, we're definitely looking at a U-shaped recovery. Yeah. It's not going to be a V. It's not going to be a check mark. Like the, I, saw, I saw I was watching one of the news channels yeah, well, and they were saying, oh, it okay. could be a Nike check mark. And I'm like, eh, no, eh, no. That's, no. First of all, credit confidence. I think is going to dip to an all-time low. I don't think it'll be credit confidence. I think it'll be consumer spending. But I think that's going to lead to a credit confidence. Yeah, it could because it could. you talk about all these giant retailers or even like the down the street mom pop local business, right? That just opened up a year ago. They're not getting any foot traffic, no, and they're not. not getting any foot traffic. One because of this shutdown, people aren't going out. Yeah, because one people aren't going out, but two, but no one's making money. So when so they no don't have money to spend, yeah. So there's no disposable income to go around. There's no cash stimulus. I mean, there was one, but well, it, it was, it was at best, um, it was 60% of one third of what Mnuchin initially Well, this is the deal. Proposed. If I gave you $1,200 to spend and you received no further income beyond that, what are you going to buy with $1,200? You're going to buy rent and you're going to buy groceries and you're going to buy gas. I'm going to, yeah. That's it. If I have the means, I'm going to sit on it and not spend yeah, it. Because you're not gonna- I either need a promise that things are going to be over and better soon or then I've got another check coming next month yeah, to get me through this. And then I can spend a little more. But essentially what I'm trying to say is you're not going to go to your local B&M and just be like, look, you know, I want a nice new t-shirt. No. Exactly. So now this person, B&M, local business owner, has a high B&M likelihood. is brick and mortar. Brick for and mortar. Sorry. That are, yeah, I'm sorry. It might, it might be Yeah, I'm sorry if I uh, You know, I didn't even know. If he got too technical. Yeah, very too technical. sometimes. Yeah, well, He's gonna, I, yeah, I think we should send some congratulations, folks, to Aaron. No, he, uh, no, 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 it's not, no, nothing special. I'm, I'm, he isn't anything special. I'm He's not, ours. <laughs> but I'm technically graduating in like two days, but whatever, it doesn't matter. Which is weird because his final isn't until after the fact. Can they claw back your degree if you fail? Well, this is the thing is- uh, No, they can't. No, fun fact, I already have the credits to graduate. I know. I took this class because I wanted the finance specialization. And uh, to my surprise, I really like this class. That's excellent. I'm glad. So, yeah. That's good. I know, dude. I'm on my high horse right now. I'm so passionate about finance, man. I'm just, uh, I'm just awesome. Smart folks out there, you got a job for a, uh, a an MBA qualified whoa, whoa. amateur podcaster with pretty good ideas, pretty sweet questions. Well, track down some let's, Aaron uh, let's, let's not get too carried away because like, <laughs> I will say this, I'm very dumb. But uh, but this is a lot of fun. I wouldn't say you're dumb. I'd say I'd say you cotton on the points and you ask a question that's in many ways the question is the most revealing because I think you know the answer is how is that sustainable? The answer usually when that's the question is it isn't. So <laughs> yeah. it isn't. So you've so, asked the right question. You just aren't willing to answer. That doesn't. That's not. Hang on. This doesn't well, work. Uh, usually, I ask questions to get second opinion. But anyways. yeah, no, and and it's because. But it's. I think it's because you have the opinion in your in your own head that it's. Okay, well, that's terrific. Enough about me. Um, <laughs> so you know, with corporate debt being at forty five percent of our GDP, with people not being able to have the means to pay back and service their debts, personal debt. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Especially with. On the bottom shelf level, mm-hmm. on mine and your level, you know, people on our level are going to have a tough time honoring the debt payments. Absolutely. So is this bubble going to burst and how is that going to trickle across people at our level, people okay. at the level above us and, and so on and so forth? Okay. So here's- For the record, so- James and I are, uh, we are not anywhere near the top. Fifty percent of the no. U.S. No, we're <laughs> no. no, no, yet. American optimists say, yet. "Yeah, I'm not that optimistic about myself." That's but true. On. I think yeah. I have. There's a distinct possibility the world might actually burn down first, which is going to be funny <laughs> because oil is going to be what catches on fire, and there's just so much of it yeah. around. Oil is very flammable. Hence the they, reason they turn into gasoline and blow it up in your car. Yeah. Anyways, okay. So it starts. Okay, it started two months ago. 
when coronavirus became a thing, like a, a going concern, uh, Chinese factories actually shut down for the Lunar New Year and didn't come back, right? For a yeah, month. they shut down for a while. And, um, they- and, and what's more is that the steel foundries actually kept running at low production. Um, because did. it turns out, and I was reading into this, steel foundries are not meant to be switched off. They are a continuing process. It has to keep going to keep going. Wow. Right? So it's, it's, because, of the, it's, trend, it's because of the tremendous, tremendous amounts of heat involved to actually forge steel. Okay. So they kept producing at a low level, but consumption dropped. Well, the Chinese have said, well, there's bad weather in Brazil and other things might slow Brazilian steel production, but no one's consuming steel. And no one's consuming car parts and no one's consuming gasoline. So now you've got <laughs> oil building up, steel building up. You're going to have a glut of very, very cheap raw materials. Yeah. So like inventories are just building up everywhere. The, yeah. The inventories of product of raw material production. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's going to be great for that intermediate, the firm that buys the steel, that buys the oil. It's going to be great for the, for the automobile manufacturer who's buying the steel to make car bumpers or whatever. I, I don't know. Uh, and the refineries that are buying oil to make gasoline and aviation fuel and kerosene. It's going to be great for them because they're going to have a glut, a huge amount yeah. of just cheap product. Now, it's going to hurt them a little bit when they turn around to sell it because either no one's buying or they're going to have to lower their prices. But they're still going to have really low cogs for the first time in a while. Yeah, the problem- low cogs means lower break even. So they, uh-huh. they can afford to adjust to that demand now, of yeah. anyways. Now, the going. problem that comes due is that means decreased revenues, which we're just going to see because it's going to be a slow you. Yeah. And after that decreased revenues, of course, decreased profits, or we're actually going to see losses from some of these companies. Now, that's not inherently dangerous or bad thing. There are tax reasons to show a loss. Well, for a few years. Uh, as far as pro- carrying forward for tax reasons. carrying forward for tax reasons, yeah. uh, especially if you've got a major investment now and a huge future growth or profits expected. Yeah, we're, so like you're amortizing those expenditures on your balance sheet now. Yeah, so these companies are showing reduced profits. Now, reduced profits means I'm, you're less able to pay your debt. And unfortunately, reduced profits are going to come around right at the time that all this debt starts to become due. Well, reduced profits is kind of like a way of less retained earnings, which essentially is a way of saying as far as your operational cash or your cash flows from operational activities, you keep less of that. Yes, but here's the thing. You need to be booking big operational income in order to offset the expected expenditure in financing debt, right? So I have to undo. So previously I had huge cash flows from financing. Now I need to have operations fine. I need to have operations cash flows uh-huh. that can offset well, normally, and exceed that. Normally operations activities should be your biggest source of cash flows. Normally. It should be. But a lot of these companies have been funding expansion and funding their growth with financing, debt financing, bonds. And that's how we get the bubble. They're not expanding with equity. They're expanding with debt. Okay, so and it's about to come due. So, so before we wrap up, because I like we need to wrap up soon, because I have to take a piss like a racehorse again. But anyways, I have a theory, and okay. I want to run it by you. Well, I think we should be scientific. You have a hypothesis. I have a hypothesis. Whatever. Sorry, I have a hypothesis. Okay. My guess is this forty-seven percent corporate debt to GDP ratio. My theory or my hypothesis is that that is going to decline drastically soon, and the reason. Is because much of that 47% was taken to finance previous debts. So that'll kind of suppress a big portion of that. But at the same time, they can't service all of it because they need the cash on hand now to see themselves through this whole shutdown period. I think you're right. I think 47% is unsustainable. Technically, you could operate at 98% and you'd be okay. Technically. Yeah, technically. But that's- Technically, but you that's, can operate at much a, more than that. There's a lot I mean, of- Well, no, you can't, you can't run more than 100%. You get, well, you could, but you become a zombie company at that point. You become a, a dead company. No, no, no. That you're well, you're funding I mean, your day-to-day with financing as well, opposed to with let's operations. Be here. Let's be real here. Most, most homes are operated on- We can talk about credit if we, if we want to get to credit well, and talk about not, how- Well, I mean, not yet because I need to take a piss. Let's save that for another episode, but- Yeah. Um, no, I just mean- I mean, yeah, U.S. households have a huge and concerning amount of Yeah, debt. but I'm just saying- I think, like, I think, I think this saying, might be the wake-up call to that. If you and I are going to open up a bar, for instance, and- we didn't want to do any sort of equity financing well, on this Also, bar. even if we did, the two of us wouldn't have the equity. Yeah, either. exactly. So if we wanted to do all debt financing, I mean, the debt to equity ratio of our bar technically be very would high. be extremely high. So technically, you can operate at more than 100% debt to equity ratio. But anyways, go on. I think 
I think they have to pay down the debt. You know, my concern is you look so, at the. So you do you do kind of agree with my hypothesis that the forty seven percent debt to corporate debt to, to GDP ratio go will go down soon because they're going to service their debts. Well, it's going to go down soon for one of two reasons: either these companies are going to go bankrupt because they can't pay it, <laughs> thus it disappears. Yeah, there because they're go. in protections. Or they pay off their debt because they realize that it was necessary for the explosive growth they needed, but it was very precarious to hold so much right, debt yeah. against an asset that they that they may not be able to sell or move, yeah. and that might and it will hold its intrinsic value, but it may hold it. Well, intrinsic longer. is relative, but oil has value. Yeah, right? but the thing is, it'll hold that value perhaps longer than a creditor is willing to patiently wait. Yeah, I don't know. I think if if we're going to talk about the amount of personal debt in this country, and it is, that's a problem too. We can do that. I would, between student loans and then mortgage loans. Yeah, well, let's yeah. say that for later. But I would say that this whole thing and then this debt bubble in corporations is probably going to be a big indicator of uh, consumer savings. This is why, that's why yeah. I say consumer spending is going to go down. I think you're going to see an increase in the amount, in, in the savings rate in citizens of the United States, the population yeah. of the United States. So what happens to markets when we see this giant decline in the corporate debt to GDP ratio? What do you think? So, and make it quick because I have to piss. Yeah. So I think you got, you, there's a few things to kind of tackle with that. The big one is, so when you see less debt, you're probably going to see a decline in equity values. Really? That's yeah. And, and it'll be because they're either going to have to lower their growth expectations or they're going to start funding their things with equity. That's learning. And when I say like equity values, I mean, lower EPS earnings per share. Yeah. And that, that's the entitlement. Yeah. Right? But, but if you do, if you have lower earnings per share, fewer people aren't necessarily willing to buy in yeah. um, if they're not looking at the full picture. Right. So I think you see kind of maybe a lower equity value because these companies start to grow a lot more slower and more sustainably. I think maybe you also see maybe a rise in smaller companies becoming medium companies yeah. because the companies that are responsible with their initial debt. Yeah. But I mean, like the, the small one can become the medium one. So, so Runza being in Nebraska might become a thing in all of Kansas, all of Iowa and like all of South Dakota. And maybe a okay. few in Colorado. Like it, it's able to go from like a small, a regional thing to or like a state thing to a regional thing. Okay. Because the big company isn't necessarily going to take on the debt specifically to drown it out. Yeah. Right. So it's going to be, it might be a slower, more responsible growth from the big guys, which allows the small guys to become bigger. Well, there you have it. If it does happen and equity values start to decline. Not equity values decline. I'm sorry. Uh, EPS would go down. Sorry. So you'd yeah. see, and so you'd see yeah, equity value would grow less quickly. Is yeah, that- it would grow less quickly, but that'll also kind of create some sort of stagnation. Yeah. And that'll also kind of make it maybe go down in value. So hopefully the medium-sized companies, the small-sized companies, the smaller businesses, the local businesses can grow a little bit quicker. Yeah, it could expand. Maybe you got yeah. you got you get to have two two hardware stores yeah. instead of Granted, one. Granted, this is all guess. We don't know. Absolutely guess. We have no idea what we're talking about. Um, so that's drunkenomics for you. Anyways, if you made it this far, I appreciate you listening. Follow us on Twitter. We have merch now. Search which, Creative Brain Candy Drunkenomics. Yeah. So the link. And we got link, links on our Facebook, yeah, our link Instagram. Our, yeah, and our Twitter. Twitter. The, the links to our merch. If you go to our Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, bios, it's all right there. Find us, give us a little bit of support. I appreciate it because, you know, our liquor cabinet's running a little bit dry because my Donna dollars haven't come in yet. God, yeah. So um, <laughs> if you care for me in that sense, I would appreciate it. If not, you know, I appreciate your patronage in listening to this podcast. Yeah, no, we're but glad way, to have you. Find us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Drunkenomical. D-R-U-N-K-E-N-O-M-I-C-L. That sounds right. C-A-L. Also, don't be afraid to ask questions. So thanks yeah. to thanks one. Thanks to at One Concilium. At one Concilium yeah, for appreciate, asking. Yeah, appreciate the interest. your loyalty, man. And, Hopefully uh, that worked for you. Hopefully that answer made sense. Yeah. So. And either way, um, I got to take a slash. But uh, mm. in the meantime, you guys uh, you guys all stay drunk and out there, will you? Cheers. <laughs>